we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to White Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. My name is Keen, and here at the cabin in the woods located somewhere in Wild West Cork, we investigate stories of the strange to find out exactly why people insist on believing weird things. Now, you join us for part two of our Cottingley Fairies Go to the Movies miniseries, and there, this is the second of two. The first episode, hopefully you've heard it already, where we talk about the 1997 film Fairy Tale, A True Story. This one we're talking about the also 1997 film Photographing Fairies. This film tracks much less closely to the actual happenings, so I'm not going to be talking about them quite as much. If you don't know much about the story of the Cottingley Fairies, do go and check out episode one first, because in that episode we spend quite a bit more time talking about the nature and history of fairy lore in Victorian and Edwardian England, and the individual case of the Cottingley Fairies itself. Very quickly, in case you did listen to the last one, but you've forgotten, we're talking about a situation in 1917 where two young girls in the village of Cottingley in Yorkshire came up with these uh, photographs allegedly showing themselves cavorting with uh, mythical creatures. I, I think which was only deli- deliberately done to you know, provide uh, for the audience only of the immediate family. Uh, but the photographs became a kind of global news when they were taken up by various uh, spiritualists, theosophists, and uh, most famously Arthur Conan Doyle, of course. And then the whole thing just got out of hand. Now, in our first episode, the first movie we talked about, Fairy Tale, A True Story, was very much a kid's film. The fairies were seen as very much a positive thing and the whole nature of belief um, in the, as depicted in the film was depicted as a necessary and good thing. Of course, this is all happening against the backdrop of the First World War and people's grieving. That was obviously a huge thing at the time and people's need to believe in something in a world that felt probably as though it had been torn apart. Now, this movie, which also came out the same year, Photographing Fairies, is very, very, very different. It's much darker. It's much more grown up. It's much more adult and it has a much darker take on all of those things and it is a little muddled, I think, in its messaging, but certainly it seems to be saying that the nature of belief and the hunt for proof of weird things is not a universally positive one. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, As always, we're trying to be critical but not cynical when it comes to people believing unusual stuff, because I think we probably all believe weird things if we're honest with ourselves. And we always have a beer, of course, or some other relevant beverage for the episode. Now, I think in the first one we had a a Yorkshire-specific drink. This film, however, isn't really happening in Yorkshire. In fact, I'm not exactly sure where it is supposed to be happening. So I've just gone for uh, an an Irish craft beer. I have some Serial Killer Granola Stout from Rascal Brewing. Rascal beers used to be easier to get down here. In fact, I'm, I'm fairly sure I used to get it occasionally, even in the UK, but I've managed to find a place that does this, so a little bit of granola stout. Uh, hopefully you're enjoying something pleasant yourself as well while you are listening. I'm going to do a quick recommendation before uh, I go into the, the, the episode proper, because 
like a lot of my friends, I've just finished watching the Ripper miniseries on on Netflix. Now, <clears throat> serial killers aren't exactly my thing, but I did one episode about them, which was focusing on the novel Red Dragon and the sort of place of serial killers in, in fiction and pop culture and stuff. And I did mention some stuff about the Yorkshire Ripper recently in that episode. So um, what I found interesting about this series, which is, of course, about, about Sutcliffe, the, the Yorkshire Ripper, was that the, 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 the miniseries, it's only four episodes, I think, four episodes, and they're an hour long, like most of those kind of contemporary series. It foregrounds very much the ex- life and experience of the women who were killed, and it actually doesn't spend that much time on Sutcliffe himself, which I think is, is good and, and interesting because I, I do understand the fascination with serial killers. However, you know, I think there's a way to present it responsibly and a way not to present it responsibly. And this this series does a good job of sort of going further down the road I was trying to get to with that particular episode where, you, you know, it, it emphasizes how um, sort of the police and society at large, how their, their assumptions about the women who were killed actually uh, prevented the the police from making more headway in the case and it's arguable that Sutcliffe got away with what he did for as long as he did not because he was some sort of super genius you know of course in in pop culture we have this obsession with with depicting serial killers as like you know these these geniuses who constantly out with the police whereas I think in my episode about Red Dragon I was trying to trying to show that well more often than that it's just that they live in a society that allows them to get away with this because people just don't care about the type of women that are, are people who they're targeting, unfortunately. And uh, this series takes that idea and really, really focuses on it. So I did find it interesting. So that's The Ripper on Netflix. Um, obviously, I'm recording this in January and stuff is going crazy in the US at the moment. I'm not going to say a whole lot about it, except... One bit of audio I am sitting on is uh, an, ec- an extra bonus episode that I did for the Patreon with my occasional colleague Ali Keane about the Turner Diaries. So he's the guy who did a lot of the American Militia episodes with me. And we have this one episode about the Turner Diaries, which is incredibly dark. It's it's basically the, the Bible for sort of white supremacists in the US. If you'd like, I, I, I toyed with the idea of putting that one out there this week. Um, just as as, a, as an example for people who really don't necessarily understand the depths of you know where these people are coming from and and what their worldview is like and quite how how deluded they are and how far down in th- into their own sort of imaginary parallel universe they really are. Editing key in here specifically the Turner Diaries talks about a, a fictitious overthrow of the U.S. government by quote unquote patriot far-right forces uh, and goes into quite a lot of detail about how they would make their attacks on uh, Washington and the Capitol. So yeah, you can probably see why that's on my mind this week. I've held off putting it out there so far. It's it's a dark episode. If people are interested, let me know. As always, you can get in touch uh, where we are on Twitter. We are at Strange Ireland on Instagram. We are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. Let me know if you'd like to see that on the main on the mainstream. So that's everything I want to talk about before we get to the main episode. I don't have as much to say about photographing fairies as I do about, uh, as I did about Fairy Tale, A True Story. I think because this one doesn't, it just doesn't tack very closely to the, to the uh, actual Cottingly fairy events. And it therefore has less to say about real fringe beliefs from this time. It, it doesn't, it doesn't, even though it's a darker and perhaps more complex film, 
it it does and it has a lot to say about the nature of belief it doesn't have much to say about the cottingley fairies so if this ends up being kind of short what we're going to do is we're going to talk about an extra bonus topic at the end which is i suppose fairy adjacent and this is based on some material sent on to me by Dr. Edward Guimont, who sent me loads of great stuff recently, uh, and, and it's about the Turanian Dwarf Theory, which is the, which, the classic uh, crazy turn-of-the-century sort of pseudoscience, this idea that in, in ancient times there was a race of like dwarf people who existed uh, all over Europe, and that uh, stories of fairies and dwarves and such are in fact kind of folk memories of this. We've touched on elements of this before, but I have some great new material to talk about at the end of the episode, so stick around uh, after we're finished talking about photographing fairies, if you'd like to hear that. So what is Photographing Fairies? It is a movie based on a novel by an American guy called Steve... Sizalgi, I believe it's pronounced, and he's from Ohio. The The book was uh, 1992 and the film was 1997. And it is, let's see now, directed by Nick Willing. And um, it, this is very much a British production. So interesting. And, and I know there's this stereotype in the US that like British versions of things are like darker and uh, more grim. And, and quite often that is the case so compared to fairy tale which was I, I believe partly french and partly american financed and was a bit more happy clappy this one is is grim and quite nasty and uh, very very british funded by various uh, british um, production companies like polygram bbc arts council that sort of thing now let's have a look who's in this anybody famous toby stevens is our main character he's charles castle who's a photographer we have uh, Rachel Shiley, Shiley as um, the wife uh, who dies at the beginning. So she's a recurring character through dreams. Oh, we have Arthur Conan Doyle again. This time he's played by Edward Hardwick. And he actually looks a lot more like Arthur Conan Doyle than the folks, um, than uh, I think it was Peter O'Toole in, um, in Fairy Tale. Who else? Oh, we have Ben Kingsley is kind of our, our sole big name here. And he's the, the Nicholas Templeton, who's the, the local religious guy. And we have Emily Wolf as Linda, who's the nanny for the kids. So what what are we going to start with this one? I think we'll start by saying, yeah, it's, it's a lot more adult. This is not at all a kid's film. There is a lot of, uh, there's a lot of sex in this. There's a lot of death and grimness. Um, arguably suicide so if you don't need that in your day you can skip this but it's only very brief and it's not even it's not even certain but it, it just has a much more grim take on the whole nature of uh, of belief full stop so we start off with a i'm, I'm not going to talk about every element of this film i'm not going to do a blow by blow plot account because not a whole lot of the plot really falls into my purview to be honest it's um it's telling its own story but i, I will reference sections where um, the film touches on elements of of belief from this time, so I'm not going. It's not going to be spoilerific the way my last episode was, and you might consider watching this one yourself if indeed you can get a hold of it. It's not it's not easy to get a hold of these days, certainly on my side of the pond anyway. So the the music for this one is quite is quite interesting. It's very gothic. It's very dramatic. It's a, a touch Danny Elfman at times, a melodramatic. You might even say. And it starts off with a tragedy in the Alps. So our main man, Castle, is a, a young fellow who's a photographer and he has just been married to uh, his new wife and then she dies in a, uh, like a, 
an accident in the mountains and the Alps and he's haunted by her and again this is a World War one time and it's not a huge budget film but the the sets and the costumes are lovely I do like this period of history visually it's it's very attractive it's again like I said in the last episode it's a really interesting kind of a borderland between Victoriana and the modern world because you've got a lot of Victorian dress sense mindset mores but then you've got the the modern world encroaching with with the technology and photography of course being a key one because uh photography is is foregrounded in this film it's a, it's a very strong theme compared to the last film where the the actual photographs themselves were sort of glossed over whereas in this film photography itself is is the driving engine of the plot such as it is so we have this young fellow who's a photographer and he's grieving because his wife has died and again like in in fairy tale you know it's about loss and it's about coming to terms with loss and it's about letting go but and and at the time of the first world war too but like in fairy tale it's not a loss that's a direct result of the war which i found interesting i I believe in the in the previous episode i said that there was a, a child who had died of some disease and the mother was grieving and kind of reached out to the the fairies and the spiritualism for that reason and again it's like a it's like a reference to the grieving that was happening all across europe but not directly because of the war same thing here the wife is is, has died through a pretty random accident um but uh, our boy castle suffers the the consequences of that and and his feelings and his, his difficulty in letting go all against the backdrop of post-World War One Europe, but it's not directly because of the war. Anyway, we do see him living through a section of the war. He, do, he, do, he does serve, and he's got all his f- photographic equipment with him. And I'm not sure if we're supposed to think that he's using it officially, like he's some sort of army photographer, or if it's just like a weird hobby he has, but he's going out into no man's land photographing uh, the dead soldiers, and it's shown that he has something of a death wish. He doesn't care whether he lives or dies you know bombs are going off all around him and he's not in too much of a hurry to get out of their way so we see that he is he's a broken man he's he's been changed forever by the death of his wife and and the light has gone out of his life and everything else that happens in this film i guess is to be seen against that background his job when he gets back to london after the war is he has a photography studio and he takes pictures for grieving families and he has an actor who comes in and pretends to be their dead sons who died in the war dressed up in a military costume and then after he takes the photograph he changes the face so he asks the families for a, a photograph of the dead son and then he does a bit of photograph trickery a bit of old school photoshop to kind of stick the face onto the face of the actor so it looks like the family has got a new portrait of them with their son in in the military uniform i've looked this up i've not come across this as as a real thing in real life i don't know that this happened if anyone out there is aware that this was uh, a done thing at the time by all means please let me know i'd love to know it does however remind me of death photography which absolutely was real that was the victorian the victorian practice of having photographs taken of uh, somebody newly deceased sometimes entire family portraits with the with the dead person and and, and as far as i know uh, the the death of somebody in a family would often be the trigger for them to go and oh because we'll go get a family portrait and they would uh, you know be, be before the body was too far gone basically so uh, the, which is the subject of a recent irish kind of pseudo gothic tv show called uh, dead still if anybody's seen that they used to do weird things like 
like like like stick eyes onto the face after the photograph was was made to make the dead person look more alive sometimes and uh, one weird side effect of the process was that you know it would take a certain amount of time for the exposure in those days uh, so the the living beings the living humans would would often move a little bit but the dead body wouldn't so very often the the dead person would look sh- more sharp and more realistic than the uh, the actual living people which is a little bit weird so early in the film we have this theme of photography and resurrection castle is just kind of talking to himself kind of slyly as he is sticking the the face onto the onto the actor and says you know, I am the life and I am the resurrection. And he's talking about bringing them back to life, which is going to be um, an ongoing theme. And he also says that it's it's trick work, but it's honest trick work. So he's he's laying a line between, you know, I do this and it's it's false, but we all agree that we know we want it done because it makes us feel better. Later on in the film, he's going to get sucked into something that he feels is, is actually real. And he goes to visit a theosophical society. It's not really made clear whether he does this because you know he genuinely hopes that they'll show him something that you know, will give him relief you know he he seems far too snide and cold at this point in the film to really believe it he, he's walking around the build the, the building and there are seances going on in various rooms and he's kind of sneering at this uh, incidentally we hear one one medium inside in a darkened room doing a classic Victorian seance and the the spirit guide is talking back to her through the medium and calls her Florence which I I wonder might be a nod to Flory Cook who was of course a famous Victorian era medium. He then stumbles into the main room where there is a presentation um, being done about fairies and the the guy doing the presentation I don't think he's named in this scene but Basically, it's it's either Gardner or it's some stand-in for Gardner, who you might remember as as the guy in reality who sort of helped to popularize the Cottingley Fairies. He was a, of course, a um, a theosophist. I think in this film, Conan Doyle does use Gardner's name a couple of times later on, so I pre- I think we can assume that this is uh, is supposed to be him. It looks a little bit like him anyway, going on his uh, his photograph in Arthur Conan Doyle's book, The, the Coming of the Fairies. So he's talking to an audience about this miracle of photography that has just been uncovered and he shows them a picture of the actual Cottingley fairies. This is the real photograph of the, the first picture that came out, which is the littler girl, um, Frances, with the, with the multiple fairies dancing around in front of her. And it's interesting because in the, in the other film, Fairy Tale, A True Story, they used versions of the real pictures, but with the actress's faces swapped in which makes sense, I guess. Whereas in this film, they're using the real one. And he actually calls, he mentions the town of Cottingley. And, uh, but this is, this is not what the film is going to focus on, oddly enough, because uh, he's giving the talk and he's talking about the, the fairies and what they represent to him as a, as a theosophist. And he says they're the handmaidens of nature. They are messengers between this world and the next. We, we don't get a lot of information about theosophical thinkings and theosophical theology and thank goodness we don't because it's it's intense and a little bit insane but that's enough that's all we need for the for the sake of the film the fact that fairies exist means that there's something more than the material world and therefore there's some connection to another bigger world um, another continent as Doyle describes it in his book Castle being a misery guts immediately says kind of 
well, look look how fake this is, everyone. And he points out that the uh, basically stuff I said in the previous episode about this picture, which is that the the beck, the, the waterfall behind the girl is moving, but the fairies are not. And therefore, you know, the the, the water is, is blurry, but the fairies are not. So clearly they're not moving. And he points out all of that. And Doyle, Arthur Conan Doyle is in the audience. And he gets up and says, oh, well done, old, old boy, old chap, you know, I, 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 and he, he's way more open to being corrected than he on this particular issue anyway, than he was in reality. He basically congratulates him for rooting out a fraud and basically says, you know, this is a good thing. You know, we're all searching for truth. We don't want to be taken in by frauds. You know, we, we need to be uh, continually working towards finding the real evidence uh, sad, sad to report that Doyle was not quite as uh, as skeptical as that in reality, and was indeed taken in by this particular case and and many others. Unfortunately, he says, you know, some, sometimes we stray from the path, but you know, it's all it's all for the best, and we'll we'll keep working on this and find that real evidence. So it turns out that even though the film brushes aside. The real life Cottingley incident. There is an analogous case that has happened somewhere else in, in England, which is weirdly similar. There are two young girls who also have produced photographs of fairies, uh, and there's no location given for this, so we we get none of the sort of Yorkshire-specific stuff that fairy tale had. Uh, what happens is the mother of the two girls approaches Castle. I think her name is Beatrice after the talk and says look these are photographs that my two girls took interestingly the fairies are conceptualized very differently to fairy tale they're not played by actors that have been shrunk and nor are they like the cheerful happy clappy kind of creatures that we saw before they are blurry and indistinct and arguably not anything in particular and crucially uh, Beatrice points out that she didn't see them at the time that the pictures were taken. She was there and she took some of them. The girls could see the fairies, but she herself couldn't. So it looks for a moment like the film is going into that sort of, you know, children can see fairies, but grown-ups can't because there's something fundamental that changes within our brains as we get older that leaves us unable to see these magical things. It doesn't ultimately go that way. It goes somewhere else with this. At first, Castle is not impressed. Um, uh, but later on, he notices a small detail, which is that there is a reflection of one of these shining luminous things in the eye of the girl. And he becomes obsessed with it. He blows up the picture and starts making copies all over the place and annoying his his business partner in the in the film studio, the, the movie, the camera studio. And the, he, uh, clearly we see that he's obsessed right from the beginning. And, and he's not behaving rationally even from the beginning. So this kind of tips us off that even though he hasn't seen too much yet, that should be exciting him. He's so far gone in his despair that he is he's desperate for absolutely anything that might point to the existence of another world so that maybe he could somehow be reunited with his, his dead wife. So off he goes to this town where the pictures were taken. And once again, we're off to a sort of a mythical pastoral England it's called Birkenwell. It's a town called Birkenwell. The film doesn't really give us any many clues as to where this might be. It was filmed, as far as I can tell, in Buckinghamshire. And most people... I know, I know, I know Bucks a little bit. I've been there a few times. And most of the cast members, when we get to this village, have, you know, fairly acceptable South of England upper class home counties accents. But there's a few... There's a few hardcore northern and West Country accents thrown in there as well, just to show that... 
somebody wasn't being too careful I, I, I don't know what they were really going for with this the the town itself is um more mysterious and a little bit gothic than it is magical it was pretty magical and, and green and beautiful in fairy tale but in, in photographing fairies it's a little bit weirder and we're less sure that this is a good thing that he's going there we're less sure that he's on his way to a happy fun times adventure which as it turns out he's not we meet our kind of big name actor ben kingsley as the local reverend he's the husband of beatrice and he's weird he's he's kind of creepy and standoffish from the beginning and his behavior is his motivation is is murky to me throughout the film places him as an antagonist frequently but ultimately I, for me personally maybe i missed something maybe i'm just thick but the film felt muddled in its messaging about you know what he believed and and what he does and, and stuff like that but we'll, we'll get to it I'll, I'll explain it as best i can without any spoilers we then have a we early on we we get a character who is as far as we can tell is driven to death by trying to see these fairies and we get our first inkling that this is um that the belief in the fairies is not necessarily a good thing uh, so the fairies are associated with this one tree this beautiful big tree in the middle of the woods somewhere outside the town and that's where the girls go to see them and um this person has has killed herself trying to climb the tree while attempting to see the fairies and we don't know if it's deliberate or not it's i i don't think it's i think i think it's accidental but like yeah we, we get the first clue that in this film belief itself is not an unqualified good thing which immediately strikes it out as being different to fairy tale the two girls incidentally are quite young much younger than they were in real life if you remember um francis griffith and elsie wright were i think 10 and 16 at the time both films i think this is important place them at much younger once again they're about five and maybe nine or ten in this film but they're not in it a whole lot to be honest the film doesn't focus on them they're not primary characters or they're at least they're not point of view characters like they were in fairy tale the point of view is entirely from castle and the girls are only in it in as much as he is trying to learn from them what's going on with the fairies weirdly they have a little he, he observes them having a little mock christian ceremony um in front of the tree where they they use like the language from from church or from mass and they say things like you know this is our such and such which has been given up for you and they're basically and this is where the film goes off into its own planet the, the kids are basically eating this hallucinogenic plant which grows somewhere nearby which allows them to to experience time differently so it's implied that the fairies and this this is interesting to me this is based on some stuff that Gardner would have written about and some stuff that um, Hodgson the spiritualist who got involved did write about which was the the kind of theosophical view of the fairies was that they are beings unlike us in that they they you know inhabit the same planet but they are operating at a different frequency for example some kind of higher frequency that means they're not visible to us unless some sort of alteration is made to our to our brains and that's what's happening whenever somebody takes one of these hallucinogenic plants and I, you know that's a fairly interesting idea there's also the implication that something about the fairies is addictive to us that the luminescent light of them they can go through you or into you and it's hinted only very vaguely that maybe this is what happened to the person who died which is that they were so consumed with the fairies and it's 
I'm not sure whether the film is saying that, you know, belief itself is addictive, like people wanting to believe in something because they need it to overcome their their despair itself is addictive, or is it just that there's something sort of physiological about these creatures that pulls you in and makes you want more? I suspect both. In terms of the design of the fairies themselves, I've said they're not they're not played by real people. They are CGI, but they're very stylized and they're very and um, they're a little bit abstract, but you can see that they're tiny people um, naked with with fairy wings and they're slight the women are like slightly sexualized in, t- in term that they're naked and um but then the the males are kind of grotesque and they have these big fat beer guts these are not the magical fairies of fairy tale they're like some weird earthy sexy slightly grotesque kind of uh being and there's a touch of I don't want to go but I'm going out in my going out on a limb here but there's a touch of cosmic horror here the idea that you know this guy accidentally discovers that if if he if he can alter his perception just slightly he'll realize that we share our world with these weird creatures that you know he never learns to communicate with them they don't talk to him they're not friendly or he he never learns anything about them you know whether they're malignant or 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 not they just they're just there doing their own thing and they're weird and it kind of makes you think well geez what else is out there you know what else are we not seeing so yeah quite different from from the first film and then we we get the whole time castle is having sort of he's having these fantasies of returning to his wedding day in the alps and his wife being still alive and we we get a pretty explicit sex scene which you know really marks this out as being again not a kid's film and he has a lot of weird interactions with with Ben Kingsley, the the husband, um, who who's a religious man, and he, he the, Ben Kingsley says things to him like, uh, you know, as as Castle is on the hunt for the fairies and he's desperate to try and photograph them, as the title relates to. Ben Kingsley says, "It's not proof you need; it's faith." They have this kind of argument about faith, and Kingsley is is like weird and cold throughout the film, and he doesn't react emotionally to big changes the way you would expect and I, to me i'm not sure what he's supposed to represent in this film he, he draws this distinction between faith and proof which I, I don't know where the film is going with this because uh, it's not clear to me whether castle is is driven sort of in the direction he's driven by his need to believe or his search for the truth is the film saying that if he had just been happy to believe in the fairies but didn't force didn't continually um yeah chase after getting the photographs then would he be fine would everything have been great you know and ben kingsley himself does sort of antagonistic things that make it hard to take him as as the voice of reason in all of this and the film for me personally seems to go back and forth a little bit about where its um its loyalties lie but the kind of one of the centerpieces of the film is indeed castle's attempt to photograph the fairies and this is a really cool scene where he has set up the whole uh, grove around the tree with all of this complex photographic equipment. He's brought in all this extra stuff from his studio in London to be able to sort of photograph something that is operating at at high speed because he believes, uh, he he says something like, these cameras don't make things up, they record what is there. And again, we're hitting on this idea that the camera doesn't lie, which was a huge thing if you read Victorian or Edwardian um, spiritualist stuff and, and spirit photography and all of this this idea that um, you know the vast majority of the public 
believed what they saw um, with photography. They weren't aware of the ways in which the things could be faked, which is why people like Houdini, who of course appears in fairy tale but not in photographing fairies, though his work was so interesting and so important at this time. So while he's desperately trying to get people to believe in the fairies and the proof that he thinks he now has, Castle returns to talk to Arthur Conan Doyle. And Doyle is weirdly sceptical about this. Um, he brings, he's brought the, the, the photographs are brought to him. And uh, there's a lovely scene where they're at Doyle's palatial manor where he lives. And Doyle gets them, uh, he's of course in a smoking jacket in front of a roaring fire. And he gets them both a drop of whiskey and they're sitting down looking, talking about the occult, which is magic. That ticks all my buttons, obviously. Uh, but Doyle is, is weirdly sceptical. He, he's not... He's not taken in by these new photographs any more than he was by the old one. And he says to Castle, heaven is not a physical place. Because because Castle is, is clearly going off the deep end at this point. He's he's mesmerized by the idea that these photographs and the fairies will somehow teach him how he can be together with his wife again. And the whole time he is, of course, ignoring the attention of the the, the younger nanny, who is who's Linda, and she's... You know, the, the character who's supposed to try and pull him out of the rabbit hole and say, look, you're here now. This is real life and, and we're having a nice time and this could go somewhere. If all all you have to do is live in the here and now and, and stop obsessing over this sort of occult thing that you're into and, and stop obsessing over something that was in the past and that you hope might be again, because because this is happening now. You have you have a potential happiness now and he, he refuses to hear this and he takes the photographs to Doyle and Doyle says like you're looking for heaven but heaven is not a physical place it, it's a state of sorry I'm, I'm meandering into cliche here but he basically says it's, it's a state of mind it's a it's a spiritual way of being it's not a hard and, and fast physical thing but Castle is obsessed with the idea as he says that what if heaven was as real as, as Clacton on sea which uh, I hope is better than that. <laughs> um, so that's, if you know anything about the real life history of Arthur Conan Doyle, it's really weird that they chose to portray him as the skeptical one, as the even tempered one, as the one who chose to apply, you know, a, a bit of kind of meta thinking to all of this because he really wasn't, unfortunately. That, that's not, he, he was frequently taken in by pretty daft things and took, fairly literal takes on them as well as spiritual ones to him i think the the one led uh, to the other uh, you can read a lot of his writing about spiritualism where he talks about you know oh this is different to other kinds of of belief because we have proof you know we have spirit photographs and we have you know ectoplasm and we have things that materialized in in seances and now we have the fairy photographs which he wrote a whole book on so yeah, really, really weird to me that they chose to make him the the cool-headed character here. But Castle doesn't listen and eventually goes further and further down the road of, you know, not, not living in the real world. And he eventually surrenders to the real world and or surrenders living in the real world and, and uh, chooses a sort of a fantasy over a reality. And uh, things get only darker and more grim after that. And that's all I'm going to say about photographing fairies, really. Like I said, I'm, I'm not going to go... Things in the plot happen. There's no point in me just saying them or spoiling them. They don't have a whole lot to do with 
the, the, the stuff I'm interested in. Really, what I'm interested in is the difference in comparing this film to Fairy Tale, how you've got two different takes on the same story and what we can learn about that from, you know, how people see different stories from within the same one. If there's any relevant message here, I guess it is the dangers of, indeed, surrendering to completely ridiculous belief systems. And I don't think I need to point too far uh, in this day and age for any examples of that and the big, big, big problems that they tend to lead to. Okay, I promised you a little extra on this episode as well, and I do have uh, an extra fairy adjacent uh, bit of interesting material here, and this is of course on the history of the idea, the weird idea, of the Turinian dwarf. So there was, sort of at the same time as fairies were very popular in, in mass media and in spiritualist thinking, there was this kind of parallel stream of ideas going alongside it that you know, perhaps uh, legends of little people uh, around Europe uh, were based on some real ancient race of small people who inhabited Europe. And this was not necessarily a, a spiritual thing. This was a kind of a pseudo-ethnical, a pseudo-archaeological thing. So it's, it's really, really interesting to see how um, these two ideas were running side by side. Now, a couple of mentions about this. Firstly, we've echoes or shadows of this have crept into episodes before so our episode about Arthur Mackin called the novel of the black seal very much deals with this idea and, and I'll be mentioning Arthur Mackin again here he wrote was of course a, a Welsh writer who wrote um what we now consider types of weird fiction and uh, very often about the the idea that there were these kind of prehistoric leftover tiny people living somewhere in the British Isles uh, you know remembered in folk memory as fairy people or dwarfs of some sort. We've also mentioned it I think well maybe we did in our Margaret Murray episode uh, which is, is brilliant I'm very proud of it actually it's, it's an important and it's a very important one she was a very important influence on Lovecraft who we'll talk about now as well but whether or not I mentioned it on that episode I don't actually recall but she was into this idea as well, and she included this in her books alongside her more famous uh, witch cult hypothesis, the idea that the, the, the witches of um, the early modern witch trials were in fact you know, people carrying on some ancient pre-Christian pagan religion. This idea also crept into our episode about the quote-unquote stick Indians and sort of folklore of North America, where I made links between that and folklore of Ireland, where of course we have this idea that, sort of from medieval times and medieval Irish Celtic Christianity, the idea that the little people, the Dinashiha, were once, um, you know, powerful gods or a powerful race who lived upon the earth and were pushed aside by the, the comings of later groups of people and that they went underground and became a little bit mysterious and still showed up from time to time in the form of, of the little people as we know them today. So all of that ties into this Turanian dwarf idea. There are echoes of it throughout. Also, I just want to say we are dealing with sort of Victorian era racial ideas here. There's a lot of language that I'm not comfortable with. I've done my best to find the, the most appropriate terms for different groups of people. But, uh, you know, I, I recognize that I'm, I'm playing with fire here. I don't know the correct terms for absolutely everything. I'm not an ethnologist. And a lot of this Victorian stuff deals with 
sort of groups of people and categorizations that we just don't subscribe to anymore. They really don't make a whole lot of sense given what we what we understand about genetics now. So it's it's obsolete anyway, and not all of this terminology has a sort of an up-to-date correct replacement. I'm going to do my best not to say anything too horrible, but um, just be aware we are dealing with a really, really racially obsessed time and, and a time when sort of weird pseudoscience and, and weird fiction as well was really wrapped up in all of these strange ideas about race. And it's inevitable when we talk about people like Lovecraft, unfortunately. I do think it's interesting and I do think it is, it, it's important for us to realise quite how much of this stuff lay behind a lot of strange scientific ideas and writing at the time and, and quite a bit of it mainstream as well. And uh, I think, you know, being honest about this stuff can help us to understand how we got to where we're at now uh, to some degree anyway. So we're going to start off with Lovecraft. So Lovecraft wrote a, an article called Some Backgrounds on Fairyland. I believe this is from a letter he sent in about 1935 and he gives a because he was interested in folklore, he was interested in history, he was interested in ethnicity. This was the sort of thing he read widely about. He read Margaret Murray. We know that. He mentioned her a lot in his, even in his books. Yeah, I think she's mentioned in Call of Cthulhu. But here he talks about the sort of history of the idea of fairy lore. And then he says, so much for the purely mythical side. It is now time to consider an antipodally diverse side of the fairy's ancestry, which has no connection with the primal legends uh, a side which from the earliest ages has tended to mix itself with the lore of night demons and consequently become adopted into fairyland. He talks about the contact of Aryan races, that is Caucasian white people, with some alien stock of darker colouring and diminutive physique encountered during the struggle for the settlement of Europe. This is very sort of Robert E. Howard stuff here, the idea of, you know, feuding races battling for supremacy in, in prehistory. Lovecraft says that such a contact occurred can, for many reasons, scarcely be doubted, and we see reflections of it in all the traditional descriptions of such, quote, fairies, as embody chiefly the attributes of night demons. Such earthy or underground spirits have, in European folklore, a particular set of fixed, special qualities. They are conspicuously small, conspicuously repulsive, consistently subterranean in habit, generally primitive in their arts and crafts, usually hostile or fearful towards human beings, and given to certain definite practices, such as theft of human infants, accompanied by the substitution of their own. So a little a little reference there to, um, of course, the lore of changelings once again. He then goes on to say that uh, these various ideas about sort of malevolent fairy-type people uh, quote, is not purely a night demon, but a synthesis with a very genuine dwarf or pygmy race of men whom the Aryan at one time or another displaced and drove into underground hiding, and who afterward kept up a furtive and vindictive course of reprisals against their conquerors. Now, the uh, unpleasant racial terms aside here, that does fit in fairly closely to the sort of medieval Irish ideas of, of the little people he goes on to say, Driven underground, decimated in numbers and hunted down wherever seen, the vanquished dwarfs became sly creatures of the night, sallying forth by stealth to waylay lone travellers, steal infants for nameless sacrifices, and otherwise vent their hatred of the Aryan conquerors. Oh, here we go. In time, 
it is certain that many Aryan renegades went over to them and joined their number, as men in savage places go native today, and that they succeeded in inculcating their repulsive system of fertility worship amongst a decadent stratum of the Aryans, thus giving rise to the furtive witch cult with its sinister organisation and ceremonies, and its obscene and orgiastic sabbat. Yeah, I think I'd recognise that was Lovecraft's writing, even, even if I didn't know it was him. And obviously he mentions um, Margaret Murray's work there pretty much by name when he says witch cult. And anyone who's a fan of, of Lovecraft uh, will, will recognise these ideas. Interesting how throughout all of this writing on the on the dwarf theory, the, the insistence that they are, you know, non-Aryan, that they are um, short and dark and sort of Asian looking and they use nastier language than that of course to describe it but uh, consistently there's this idea that they could be linked with people who came from sort of northern asia northern central asia into northern europe groups like the the sami people in northern scandinavia today he says in the opinion of the older mythologies and of many modern ones the little people of elfin lore represent none other than the squat He's, he uses some words there I'm not going to use, but basically Northern European people, he calls them Laps and Finns, I think Sami people is, is the preferred term now, whom the Whites found upon their entrance to that region. The size, colour, accomplishments and manners of these stock in their purest forms lend much plausibility to the hypothesis, and it is highly probable that they covered a much larger area of the European continent than is now the case. A much more modern and much bolder theory identifies our dwarfish foes of prehistoric times with the Neanderthaloid sub-men who shambled over Europe about 30,000 BC and which were exterminated by the successive waves of true human beings who swept into the region after that date. The theory, while vastly interesting, has much less standing than the one previously mentioned. I'm now going to read a tiny little bit about where, where the term Turanian dwarf comes from which is, is sort of, in, in as much as there's not that much written about this idea anymore and it's not easy to find information on, that is how it tends to, that it tends to be the blanket term for it. Now this is from BritishFairies.wordpress.com. I'll put a link to, to that in the show notes. And um, this, they start off talking about Arthur Mackin because this is their intro to this idea, as it was for me, actually. So the stuff like the, the novel of the Black Seal is where I first came across this idea as well. And uh, they write, Mackin followed the theories of Scottish folklorist David McRitchie, 1851 to 1925, which were set out most fully in his book, The Testimony of Tradition. He traced the phase, that is the fairies, Back to dwarfish, laps, or Eskimos, from linguistics and anthropology came the label Turanians, which denotes the Ural-Altai family of languages, including Finnish and Turkish, and which was used to denote an ancient and primitive culture from Central Asia. These peoples composed the aboriginal population of Europe before the fair-haired Aryans arrived and drove them north and west into the remotest recesses of the land. Amongst those influential authors who promoted this idea, oh, here we go, were Edward Bulwer-Lytton, of course, the guy who wrote The Coming Race, which might get its own episode on one day. He was, I, I feel personally, he was kind of co-opted into the occult movement, not necessarily uh, by his own choice, but, but that uh, you might disagree with me on that. Sabine Baring Gould, who wrote many books about ghost stories and werewolves and vampires and all sorts of great stuff in the Victorian times, 
and our old friend Madame Blavatsky, founder of Theosophy, who stated in her book The Secret Doctrine that the Turanians were, quote, typified by the dwarf. So again, the idea that um, they are this, this tiny race of small people who lived in Europe before the current inhabitants, and uh, they were prehistoric inhabitants, cave dwellers, who retreated before the advance of modern humans. And um, this blog goes on to talk about all the different stories of Arthur Macken in which this idea shows up. Now, finally, I'm going to turn to a section of a book called Strange and Secret Peoples. This is by Carol Silver. And Carol Silver has a chapter called Turanians Among Us. And she says, uh, the reason that descriptions of, of small people from around the world, I'm paraphrasing here, may lie in the now discredited Turanian dwarf theory, which seemed to prove polygenesis while supporting prejudice and provoking cultural anxiety. It rendered literal and scientific the Scandinavian mythic belief that dwarfs were descended from a race older and other than Homo sapiens. There's some really mad stuff here as well about how like Victorian kind of pseudoscientists and, and archaeologists and uh, folklorists did their level best to describe groups of people from around Europe as being perhaps remnants of, of this hypothesized race. They look at folks in, in, in the north of Morocco and people from certain parts of Spain and just tie themselves in knots trying to say, oh, but these people are, you know, a bit darker or a bit shorter than the average. Perhaps they, you know, have some genetic remnants of these people. And uh, it's it's all it's all a bit of a reach, to be honest. And then we get to my, my favorite part where she talks about how this shows up in, in fiction of the time. And this, this goes a long way for me, at least towards explaining why this idea was, was so prevalent, why it pops up so often in weird fiction of the 1890s and 10s and 20s, she says, Little goblin men in general took a new hold on the Victorian imagination. Aubrey Beardsley's creatures, for example, including the grotesque little monsters of the illustrations for Salome, are less eccentric and unique when seen as outgrowths of the Turanian theory. The savage little Picts of John Buchan's No Man's Land in The Watcher by the Threshold in 1902 are even more threatening specimens of the new monstrous little goblin men and embodiments of the fears that they provoke. Heavily influenced by McRitchie's, quote, pygmy theory, Buchan places his Picts a horrible primitive survival in subterranean caves in the wilds of the Scottish highlands of his own day. When Graves, the protagonist, a historian, encounters his first specimen, he is appalled. Quote, it was little and squat and dark, naked apparently, but so rough with hair that it wore the appearance of a skin-covered being. In its face and eyes, there seemed to lurk an elder world of mystery and barbarism, a troll-like life which was too horrible for words. Right, so uh, John Buchan, if you know, is of course uh, better known for sort of World War One era spy novels like The 39 Steps. I read this one, uh, No Man's Land, from Watcher in the Threshold, because I was utterly uh, bewildered and captivated by this little this little quote. So I'm just going to talk about it a tiny little bit. This book is from is it was it's from 1902. The story is supposed to be happening a little bit earlier in the 1890s, and it's about uh, this this historian Graves who travels up to sort of the wilds of the Highlands and discovers that the the local people there have a folklore about you know the little people uh, and. He discovers that this is, in fact, a, a leftover relic pre-human race. And 
he wonders if they are the Picts. And this was really interesting to me because it seems that at this, like the Picts were a group of people who were real and existed <laughs> in Northern Europe, um, I think prior to the Celts. And I know that, you know, we, we don't know as much about them. We, we know little enough about the Celts and we know even less about the Picts. But like the fact that we know little about them seems to have made them into this very mysterious thing in Victorian times. He ta- Buchan talks in this book about you know, the mystery of the Picts and who were they and what were they and just the mere fact that he could speculate that, oh, well, maybe they were these kind of pre-human ape men is just is just outrageous to me. I, I, can't, I can't get over it. I couldn't believe how the fact that they were such a blank canvas that people were, even even in the in the guise of, you know, weird fiction, they're, they're postulating stuff like this. I thought that was absolutely astonishing. Secondly, it was really, really, really interesting for me to see the wilds of Scotland portrayed in this way. So as someone who, who has an interest in lost world literature, lost race literature, um, and, and the idea of, you know, in the Victorian times, explorers going to quote unquote exotic places, I, I'm really fascinated by the, this attempt to make Britain itself or, you know, parts of Britain to make them uh, like exotic and wild and, and especially as as an ecologist and a conservationist myself when, when I look at even the most wild and remote parts of the British Isles you know it it's even in places people don't go to or very often or where the landscape is fairly rugged and um, populations are low you know we're not really talking about vast wide open wildernesses where you can get lost um, easily and Every every bit of it has been affected by like sheep grazing and the the hand of man and thousands of years of agriculture. Even the places that do seem to be quiet and empty. So it's really interesting to me whenever I read literature that does its best to turn parts of 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 the British Isles in, into this kind of exotic, rugged place where some some mysterious animals or creatures might be lurking. That's tremendously fascinating to me. Carol Silver goes on to say, The Picts' behaviour, however, is even more savage than their preterhuman anthropoid appearance. Wantonly murdering those they accidentally encounter, they practice human sacrifice. Without women, they maintain their race by, you get it, abducting, uh, you guessed it, abducting and then mating with young mortal girls. The tale ends with the call for their extermination, with the warning that they may still survive. I'm going to finish by saying that this this strand of thinking, both the regular sort of fairy mythology and this bizarre Turanian dwarf idea, they both contain within them the seeds of the idea that the the standard way to imagine an alternate group of you know intelligent beings living alongside us in some sort of parallel reality is that of a you know a short or small or diminutive human-looking being, very often with a large head. And I think if this isn't making you think of sort of alien greys and abduction literature, if all of these stories about mysterious people from under the ground stealing people, stealing children, stealing babies, kidnapping people, people going to the other world, and, you know, I can think of any number of stories from Irish or or Celtic folklore that would fit into those motifs. Look how many of these core ideas, you know, pass on straight away into alien abduction later on in the 20th century. And, and it's not just, you know, Jacques Vallée writing about this stuff. I, I think there's a lot to be said for it. And I think um, many, many people have made those connections over the years. And uh, the same ideas tend to occur and reoccur. We just put a different dress on them. We just put a, a different um, 
we've just put a, a sort of a coating of post-World War II scientific veneer on top of them, but the ideas themselves are very, very old. Well, that's everything I have to say about fairies and dwarves for now. Hope you've enjoyed the episode as always. Uh, I welcome polite uh, corrections and ideas for other episodes and stuff like that. I think soon, probably for Valentine's Day, we'll be trying to get our Picnic at Hanging Rock episode out the gap. So if you're a fan of the book or the Peter Weir film or even the 2018 TV series, which is okay, I'm, I'm don't have a whole lot to say about it i guess if you have thoughts or ideas about those please get in touch with us before the episode uh, on twitter we are at strange ireland on instagram we are white atlantic weird podcast yeah look out for yourself so as always stay safe and thanks for listening we are certain that satanism exists it's the practice of evil and following closely behind this car was this Unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.